is to reflect him in thought, deed, and action. To be only human is not an excuse, but a description of identity and order. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul lays out the, the what of the plan of God. The script that we find in the meta narrative that is Bible, the what, that is the Bible, we find the what in, in chapter 1. We find descriptions of our true identity. We find a description of God's true identity. We find a description of how these identities work together in relationship. We find that loyalty to Jesus means loyalty to his church and love for others. In chapters 2 and 3, we find the how of God's plan. Moving from the what to the how. How we are made children of God. How we can be called the work of art that defines the artist. And how this results in taking our place in the plan of God through the activity of his body, the church. And we see what it means to become human. So if you would join me in Ephesians chapter 2, we're starting in verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins... You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the heart of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now we can open the how of God's plan with a picture of Paul in Acts chapter 9. On the road to Damascus, in the midst of his perpetrating terrorism. On his way to commit murder, torter, torture, kidnapping, and extortion. At this point, Paul, on the road, in the midst of, of his perpetration, is full of self-righteousness and self-justification. From the view of the world, he, has, he is a model of, of ambition. He is alive with ambition. He is alive with purpose. He is alive with motivation. What's more is not only is he alive in these things, but he feels righteous in what he is doing. What he would argue at this time is that what he is doing is good. It's correct. Even though what he will do is murder, torture, kidnap, and extort, he is able to justify these actions because of his motivation and his ambition. He's driven to something. We can take a clue from a word that Paul uses in verse 1 for sin. Amartia. Amartia is a Greek word that's often used in, now used in shooting sports. This sin that he is in is amartia. Like shooting an arrow, but missing the mark. He's shooting the arrow, but he's missing the mark. He is, he is striving. He's striving for a purpose. He is striving for, he is even thinking that his purpose is the purpose of God, but he's missing the mark. 
sin is failure to hit the target. It's to miss the mark of life. Now, we do also know that, that sin is manifest in behavior, but it's driven by selfishness, and the result of this sin is missing life. Missing the point of life is death, therefore sin is death. Paul on the road to perpetrate is Paul on the road to death, marked by self-justification and self-righteousness. What he is doing, he justifies based on his standards. And he's judging others against those standards. This is that part when I'm starting to preach and I realize I might be preaching about myself a little bit. He's also claiming righteousness because of what he feels is right. But he is in this amartia because God, even though he thinks this isn't the case, but God is not the center of Paul's order on the road to Damascus. God's not leading him. It isn't God's will that Paul is working out. Paul is on a mission. To be sure, Paul is on a mission. But that mission is his own. Now, in our time, not much different than what Paul faced. Not much different than what the church in Ephesus that received this letter faced. In our time, it's become, it's become commonplace to argue that the desires or the drives or the motivations or the urges that we find deep inside ourselves, they must be God-given because they're so deep inside us. They feel so natural. They're so natural and deep inside us that, they, that we must follow them, and that must be honoring to God because of how deep that is inside us, how, mu how much I feel convicted about these desires and drives and urges. Paul was in this trap, this trap that is rampant in, in the culture today. The problem with this is that, that before we meet Jesus, before Paul meets Jesus, his and our motivations are corrupted by death, helped by the commander of the powers of the unseen realm. Now, when Paul's writing this letter, he doesn't mean that there is no goodness at all in people. It doesn't mean that goodness doesn't exist in people. It doesn't mean necessarily that, that all the physical aspects of human beings are inherently evil. He means that humans are invariably infected by evil and are subject to its power. Living in death, we are infected by evil and we're subject to its power. In the letter he wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 7, verse 18, he says, And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. If you were with us when we went through the book of Romans, you might remember me using this verse as one that, that is so, I, I believe this shows God's love that Paul would say these things because I can echo this. Instead of thinking about perfection and what perfection might mean to somebody outside of the church looking in, what Paul says here, I want to do what is right, but I can't. He's not looking for an excuse. He's talking about his condition. 
The danger of this is, is also captured by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17.5 says, This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, we rely, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Coupled with self-ambition of those that operate out of self-righteousness and self-justification is the reality that Satan helps us with those tasks. Now, we have to be careful here, right? We have to hold everything in tension, everything in balance. We don't want to be those that, that look, uh, you know, there's a devil behind every bush. This isn't the devil made me do it. But at the other side of it too, the other extremity is that, that there is no spiritual influence, that, that we're free of, of all of that. Neither one are correct. We live in this tension that there is the commander of the unseen realm that works against us. And we also know the targets that the enemy is going to work against are, first of all, it's going to be Jesus. We saw that in scripture. Not only will it be Jesus, it will be the disciples, those that look to follow um, individually. And it's also going to be the church. The enemy will work against those three targets. We see this in Scripture. We also know, though, that self-righteousness and justification can become temptation. Another way the enemy works into this. Temptation to excuse behavior. Temptation to, to treat others not as we are called to treat them, but as they deserve. Reasons to ignore people. Especially when it's their own dang fault, right? But if loyalty to Jesus is manifest in love for others, self-righteousness, and self-justification, demonstrate missing the mark of life. In Galatians 5, verse 17, Paul writes, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. This is reality. We live in the realm of spiritual warfare. This is one thing, too, that, that when we get into the next part of Ephesians 2 next week that comes through when we talk about relationships, one thing that, that we learned from, from Alan Hodges, the founder of our church, is that the, the battlefield of spiritual warfare is interpersonal relationships. The sinful nature is opposed to God and his will, even though it can seem so righteous. We miss the mark when we indulge the temptation of self-righteousness and self-justification. Paul, before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was living in this. Galatians 5, 19-21, Paul wrote, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, 
that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a beautiful passage that is. I mean, not really, though, but what a beautiful passage that, that we have a metric here. We have a metric that we can apply to what we feel and what we see actually worked out as an outcome of, of our thought, deed, and action. Living in sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, other sins like these. If this is the mark of our life, Amartya is the reality. We're missing the mark. Romans 8, 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. The Apostle James in James 1, uh, James 1 wrote, Temptation comes from our own selfish desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. What a crazy play of words that is. It gives birth to death. And in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John wrote, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our own achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from this world. The sinful nature makes people subject to God's judgment and to death, permanently separating his creation from the creator. In Galatians 6, Paul makes that point, writing, those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. That's kind of a downer kind of a message on a Sunday morning, isn't it? You know, this, we're in this place now looking at Paul as, he, as he's so righteous in what he's doing. He's so, he is so convinced of his righteousness that he's able to cover all of the devastation that is left behind in, in his actions. I can think about when, in my self-righteousness, I have I've just left, like, laid waste to people. And I could justify it because I was right, or they were wrong, or something along those lines. When we are focused on self, culture would tell us, that you're living life. Because that you should live your best life. You only live once. All of those acronyms that millennials and Gen Z use that make me feel my age. <laughs> it's all death. Pursuit of self is pursuit of death. What Paul's writing in this, this first three verses, this is just death. This is like dripping with, with dread. And then, my favorite phrase in the history of the world. But God. 
So just for a moment, sit in death. Let that, let that rest on you now. Sit in the death of self. And then hear this. The word of the creator God. The word of your savior. The word of our blessed hope. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Praise God. The how of God's plan, working out, moving from death to life. In dying for the sins of the world, Jesus Christ gives us the how of God's plan. The how is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled and replaced the Old Testament sacrificial system so that all who believe in him are restored to fellowship with God. Christ is the true high priest. Finally, liberating his people from the guilt of sin by offering himself as the supreme sacrifice. That death that we just talked about, that death that we just had sit on us, that death has to go. That death is defeated. The defeat of death is manifest in the, in the supreme death to self. The atoning purpose of Jesus Christ's death was, was not atonement for himself. We know that because he was sinless. The purpose was to open the road to adoption for us. The ability to realize our true identity. John chapter 10. John wrote, Recorded the word of, words of Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Praise God for that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote, He died for everyone so that those who receive his, his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Self-justification, self-righteousness is dead. Replaced with self-sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 2, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And I like this, something that we hear every time we share communion together. The reality of the plan of God, this plan from the God that loves you so much. In 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you what was most important and what has been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. Titus wrote, the, the letter to Titus, Paul wrote, Titus 3, 
But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. The how of the plan is now clear. We begin in a place of death that's marked with a self-focus. A key for us is, if we are focused on self, the result is death. So in that place of death, we meet Jesus on the road towards our own perpetration. Just like Paul, we are presented with the invitation to step into the atonement. Back into our passage today, Ephesians 2, verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is how we hit the mark. Christ-likeness. This is how we come alive. This is how we move from death to life. We see death and separation from God defeated by love. Self-justification, self-righteousness replaced with self-sacrifice. In the same way that Jesus sacrificed his own life, we are called to the same sacrificial action. Through the Holy Spirit in that process, God refashions those that have faith in him into the image of his son. The image of his son set before us as a model of humanity, as a model of the form of the redeemed life. So when we say I'm only human, what we are proclaiming is that we stand in the atonement of Jesus. We become his children that's certainly true. And we've talked about that a lot lately. We become his children, but more so, our identity now is found in this. We become, in this refashioning, the masterpiece of God. The art that defines the artist. This Reality changes everything. When we are not focused on ourselves, we come to life. To the church in Philippi, Paul wrote this, Philippians chapter 3. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through the faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. 
I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is not the same man on the road to Damascus perpetrating self-righteousness. All of what he worked for was garbage. And he sees now what's set before him. He also sees that this does not come at a price. Jesus died to himself, and we are called to do the same. Just as Jesus died, just as Paul gave down, gave up his right to be right, we are called to the same. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, we see then calling the crowd to join his disciples. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Peter wrote, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived, deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. With the how in mind, the how being the victory of atonement in the death and resurrection of Jesus. With this in mind, we see now how death to self calls us to love for others. The, ult the ultimate love of dying for us and the call to imitate that love points us to the importance of the church as the body of Christ. The activity of God that will take this love into the culture that misses the point of life and misses the mark. 1 John 3.16 says, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And Paul wrote in Colossians 3, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So, Vineyard, I close with this today. From 1 John chapter 4. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid of on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Victory victory, and this is how. Jesus was the plan. Jesus is the plan. And we, as his body, in this time and place, continue the plan. Amen.